0: For a few years, our colleague Duncan Maven has been investigating an ambitious banker named Lex Greensill and his company, Greensill Capital, which means that Duncan's heard Lex's origin story more than a few times—
1: He's told it over and over and over again about how he got into this whole world. So he grew up on a farm in a place called Bundaberg in Australia. It's a pretty remote part of Australia. I think it was his grandfather who founded the farm and they were growing sugarcane and sweet potatoes and watermelon. Every chance I can, uh, I'm on a tractor. Those are my roots and
2: they always will be.
0: Here's Lex in a promotional video.
2: I grew up seeing how tough it is for my mom and dad to get paid for the crops that they grew.
0: The way Lex tells it, when his family's farm delivered melons to supermarkets, the stores often failed to pay on time, which hurt the business. In a 2019 interview, he told Duncan how these delays affected his life. My
2: parents couldn't afford to send me to university because they weren't getting paid by supermarkets um, for um, cantaloupes, as we call them here in the UK, um, that weren't paid. Um, And so, you know, I'd done all right at school, uh, but I couldn't go to university. And so I had to do my law degree by correspondence. Um, And uh, I can tell you that is a tough way to earn your law degree.
0: Watching his parents struggle inspired Lex to one day start a company, Greensill.
1: He talks about democratizing finance, you know, which is a pretty lofty kind of phrase and ambition.  — But the goal was, in theory, to bring this really useful tool the big banks have to smaller and smaller firms. —
0: Greensill would bring financing programs normally reserved for big businesses to small ones, like his family's farm, helping them get paid sooner. And for years, it worked. Bankers projected that by the end of 2020, Greensill could be worth $40 billion. But then, earlier this month, in just a matter of days, Greensill publicly imploded. And its speedy collapse revealed a business that was way more complicated and way more risky than Lex had originally promised.
1: He pushes the envelope a bit more and a bit more and a bit more, and then he continues to push it further and further and further until he's kind of a million miles away from the thing he started out with. And you kind of wonder, how did he get there? Like, how can a business like this grow up from nothing, be valued at $40 billion a year ago, and now it's bankrupt.
0: Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Thursday, March 18th. Coming up on the show, the rise and fall of Greensill, a company that promised to democratize finance. To piece together the story of Greensill's rise and dramatic fall, Duncan spoke with more than a dozen people close to the company. He reviewed internal documents and emails, looked at financial records, and spent hours interviewing Lex himself. The story he uncovered starts in a very boring corner of the banking industry, something called supply chain financing. It works like this.
1: If you're a supplier, you make some goods, you make some widgets and you sell them to Ford, you want to get paid straight away. Ford might say, you know what, we pay in 90 days. Those are our payment terms.
0: For the widget maker, this can be a problem. You want to be paid for your widgets now, not in 90 days.
1: And so what the banks have done is insert themselves into that relationship and say, look, here's a great deal. Supplier, you can get paid on time for the widgets you sold, you'll get paid straight away. Buyer, you can pay in 90 days, and but you pay us now instead. We'll pay your supplier today, you pay us back in 90 days. And don't worry about it, we've got this covered, we'll take a small fee for doing that. So the supplier maybe only gets paid 95 cents on the dollar of what they were asking for, and so the bank takes the other 5 cents.
0: That's supply chain financing. Suppliers get paid by the bank right after they deliver the goods. And buyers, like in this case Ford, don't have to pay back the bank until they're ready. But even though the bank makes a little bit of money, the problem is it's not very much money.
1: It's very, very, very low margin. So the banks do it for only their very best clients, the really, really big blue chip companies. And they only make it work by doing it on massive, massive scale.
0: Lex wanted to bring supply chain financing to more companies, especially smaller ones, the kind that banks normally ignored. But there was a problem. Normally, big banks use their own capital to finance these kinds of supply chain loans. But Greensill wasn't a big bank. It didn't have that kind of money. It was just a startup. Lex's idea was, what if he got the money from investors? What if he packaged up all those supply chain loans into a fund that people looking for a safe return could invest in?
1: Instead of using the bank's own balance sheet to provide this funding, he'd go out to a bunch of other investors. So typically wealthy individuals or pension funds or just somebody who's looking for a little bit of an extra profit on their money, a bit extra return. And so he'd get this broad pool of investors.
0: And so if you're an investor, if you're a pension fund or you're a wealthy person who's looking for a little bit of return on your investment, this looks like a safe investment because it's it's just businesses that owe each other a bit of money and it should be a safe, small return.
1: That's right. And that's exactly how it's marketed and and sold to these people. It's an alternative to, you know, the safest things they can put their money into just about. You know, it's a little bit more than just putting your money in the bank and hoping for a, a return.
0: There is a drawback to selling repackaged loans as securities to investors, though. And that is, there's less profit for Greensill. Now, Greensill had to give those investors a cut of the money, too. And that's a big deal because the margins on these loans are already so small. So to widen those profit margins and to make more money, Lex had to offer loans to riskier companies, companies with poorer credit ratings, because they'd have to pay more for the loan. Here's Lex talking to Duncan in 2019.
2: To be honest with you, uh, you we didn't have kind of big backers. We didn't have kind of banks providing us with their balance sheet or anything like that when we started Duncan. So consequently. Um, we, we needed to pay the bills, and so we did business with companies that were of a poorer credit rating. Yeah, The downside of wanting to make that as a return is you're not going to be doing business with kind of big investment-grade yeah. companies because they're not going to pay right. that kind of money for right. that.
0: Not only was Greensill loaning money to riskier companies, Duncan says it was also making loans that didn't really look like supply chain financing.
1: They're things like loans to construction businesses or loans to, in one case, a longtime acquaintance who had a stake in a Development of a skyscraper in New York. And so he makes that guy a loan. It's much higher interest. Or, you know, other loans that go to other acquaintances for things that just aren't supply chain finance. They're things like a Russian cargo jet. So he, he securitizes the lease payments on a Russian cargo plane or uh, a bunch of 737 MAX planes that are bought by a, a carrier called Norwegian Air. So those are higher yielding, they're riskier they get sort of packaged up with all this stuff. And that's how he starts to generate a little bit of profit.
0: So he starts to move outside of things that you wouldn't normally consider supply chain financing.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: I mean, there's a way
1: to argue that this is still kind of financing people's supply chains. If you're an airline carrier, and then part of your supply chain is buying planes. So, you know, you can really stretch the argument and say, well, that's still supply chain finance, but it's a long way away from, you know, paying uh, farms in rural Australia for the sweet potatoes they send to the supermarket.
0: Those riskier loans were unappealing to many potential investors. They wanted a higher return, sure, but they still wanted it to be safe. So to make them safer, Lex had to do something else. He bought insurance on the loans.
1: The insurance is an extra layer of protection onto these funds. So what Greensill did was say... Look, you know, some investors can't put money into this because, you know, if there are pension funds, they might be restricted. There are restrictions on what they're allowed to invest in. And some of these companies we're talking about, especially the suppliers, are not investment-grade companies. They're, you know, tiny little companies. So what we're going to do is we're going to have that insurance essentially raise the credit rating of the underlying investments. And now pension funds and others can put their money
0: in. Just to summarize what Greensill was constructing here... In order to finance its supply chain loans, it was drawing on money from investors. But because those investors ate into his profit margins, he was having to make loans to riskier and riskier companies. And because of that extra risk, he had to buy insurance. But it worked. Investors were gobbling up Greensill Securities. They socked away $10 billion into funds that Greensill set up at one broker alone. And the supply chain finance business was catching on. And not just with small businesses and farms, but with big businesses too. Greensill took on big clients like the telecom company Vodafone, the pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca, and the Ford Motor Company. Former British Prime Minister David Cameron even joined as a close advisor. Lex told Duncan in 2019 that Greensill Capital was achieving its goal, to democratize finance.
2: What we've done is we have taken trade finance. We've made it much more visible, transparent and standardized and delivered that through to an investor world who hasn't been able to participate in it. And we pass through the benefit of that through the supply chain to those businesses. We are bringing kind of the share of financial services down in the economy. We're democratizing access to capital. Um, That's kind of what our mojo is.
0: And then more good news in 2019. A big Japanese conglomerate wanted in on the action, SoftBank.
1: SoftBank had put $1.5 billion into Greensill itself. The valuation at that point was around 3 to $4 billion. Greensill was kind of touted as this hot new startup. It had the backing of politicians. It had the backing of, you know, this massive fund. And he was talking about an IPO and... He had bankers coming into the office and saying, hey, you know, if you continue growing like this, if you keep hitting your targets, this company is going to be worth $40 billion in a year's time. Of course, we know that's not quite how it worked out.
0: How it all fell apart, that's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account, giving ambitious companies like yours the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at Mercury.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API. Your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com.
0: SoftBank is one of the biggest tech investors in the world, and when it bought a stake in Greensill Capital in 2019, it was seen as a vote of confidence in the company. But even with the cash infusion from SoftBank, Greensill didn't change its business much.
1: One of the things I thought would happen is that once they got that SoftBank money, that some of the riskier things would go away, that they'd become a more sort of mainstream business, a little bit more boring. They could focus on the more boring things because now they've got a load of cash to let them do that. That's not really what happened. They continued to lend to businesses that were a bit riskier. They continue to do some of the things they've been doing as a tiny startup. And so that was kind of surprising, really. It felt like it should have been the end of the riskier stuff, but it wasn't.
0: Around that time, Duncan started reporting on some of that riskier stuff for the Financial News, a Wall Street Journal's sister publication.
1: I wrote a story that said, hey, you know, here's this guy, he's on the rise, he's He's this billionaire on paper at this stage. You know, he flies around in private jets, but there's kind of another side to him. And it's a side where he's, like, very risky. You know, he's much more aggressive towards risk than a lot of his peers. People are starting to raise questions about him. And maybe we should look at this other stuff, this other side to Lex Greensill. —
0: Duncan's article was brought up in an interview with Lex on Sky News. —
1: Well, there was a very disobliging piece about you in this
2: publication the other day, Financial News. Um, What what did you have to think about that? Well, look, and uh, there's a lot of people who don't send me Christmas cards at some of the big <laughs> multinational banks now. Um, and uh, But the fact is, when you're disrupting a multi-trillion dollar financing industry, we are going to upset a few people along the way, but that's not going to dissuade us from, from our mission. We're quite happy to live with, uh, with people occasionally saying nasty things about us when we're changing the world and democratising capital.
0: Lex waved away the criticism, and Greensill kept loaning money to risky companies. One of those risky companies was GFG, a mining and steel conglomerate run by British magnate Sanjeev Gupta, who'd been buying distressed mills.
1: So he's buying steel mills that have essentially gone bankrupt, and he's turning around and saying, hey, I'll buy that at a you know, very low price, and I can run it better.
0: That doesn't strike me as a safe investment. If I'm somebody who's buying one of these funds, that I think I'm going to get a nice, safe return on my money.
1: Yeah, it's much riskier. First of all, it's tied to the underlying asset, which, in, as we know, is going to be distressed. It's a steel mill or an, you know other metal business that wasn't really working. And then on top of that, the business is essentially tied to steel prices, which can go all over the place.
0: If something went wrong with GFG, like if steel prices fell or a distressed mine was a bad buy, Greensill would lose a lot of money. That's because GFG was one of the few companies that actually made money for Greensill.
1: We found some figures on the top five Greensill clients at points where generating more than 90% of all its revenue. So although Greensill will be out there claiming he's got this incredibly diverse set of clients... In fact, only five of them at times were responsible for more than 90% of the revenue. And almost in every case, GFG is in that top five.
0: But all those investors who were buying Greensill's repackaged securities didn't always know that companies like GFG were propping it up.
1: In some cases, Greensill called things by code names that would have disguised, deliberately or otherwise, what the underlying asset was. So sometimes, for instance, some of the GFG assets were called other things. You would find the name of a street in Bundaberg where Lex Greensill grew up. So there are names like Rasmussen or Rabine or Seaview, and these are all streets in Bundaberg. And underneath them are loans to GFG and other companies. But you wouldn't be able to tell that.
0: How were you able to figure that out?
1: Well... I figured out where they were by using Google Maps. I figured out what was in there by talking to sources and digging through other bits of information that not necessarily public.
0: Greensill was able to hide its weaknesses from most of its investors, but it couldn't hide it from its insurance providers. And the insurance providers were getting nervous. A bunch of them started backing away. Eventually, Greensill was almost entirely dependent on one insurer based in Australia— and when they saw the kind of risk that Greensill was taking on, they decided not to renew their insurance agreement.
1: By the fall, the one insurer that Lex is increasingly reliant upon starts to say, hey, you know, we're not sure we're going to do this anymore.
0: Why did the insurer say that they didn't want to do it anymore?
1: Yeah, I think they were concerned that they were the one insurer, right? Like they are the only one who are doing this.
0: Greensill couldn't get insurance for the repackaged loans it was selling to investors anymore. And so they had to go to the bank that was selling their securities, Credit Suisse, and come clean.
1: The insurance policy ends March 1st, at which point Greensill has to go to Credit Suisse and say, hey, you know those funds that we sell as insured? They're not insured anymore. And that eventually becomes the trigger.
0: Greensill's whole business relied on money from investors, which it got when Credit Suisse resold its funds. But Without insurance, Credit Suisse wasn't so sure it wanted to sell those funds anymore.
1: Credit Suisse had to look at the assets underneath and say, well, are these real? Are they really good? How do we know what they're worth? And they decided that there was a problem with the valuation of the assets. And then they have to tell their clients, and then it all unravels. Credit Suisse has to freeze the funds. Everything starts to unravel at that point.
0: Greensill appears to be on the verge of collapse. The company is expected to file for administration within days.
1: Global financing firm Greensill has
2: filed for insolvency in the United Kingdom and Australia. So, what
0: are the implications? The risky loans, the hidden high risk clients, the insurance falling through, it all ended up being too much for Greensill. Lex Greensill said in a court filing last week that his company was hit by a perfect storm of liquidity issues, worries about whether a key client could repay its loans, and the end of that crucial insurance. What's happening with Greensill now?
1: So Greensill filed for insolvency last week, which is uh, going into administration. They're essentially bankrupt in the UK. And so at the moment, Grant Thornton, which is an accounting firm, they're trying to figure out what have they got? What can they get their hands on to reallocate to the people who are supposed to get their money back? And so who's going to foot that bill?
0: What's going to happen to all those companies that relied on Greensill for supply chain loans?
1: Some of those people are going to be okay. There are alternatives. They can go to the banks. JP Morgan, we've written about, has stepped in for some of the clients. There are plenty of alternatives. But for the big names, you know, they're going to be fine. We're sure they'll be fine.
0: But for those small firms, I mean, the small businesses that Greensill was supposed to help, that the people like his family's farm that he says that he set out to help with a business like this, what's going to happen to them?
1: Well, I guess they'll go back to, you know, begging the, uh, their big customers to get paid on time.
0: At least one of the companies Greensill gave loans to is accusing Greensill of committing fraud. That company, Bluestone Resources, sued Greensill this week, alleging Greensill didn't reveal its financial difficulties or its sources of funding. Greensill hasn't responded to the lawsuit. Do you think that Greensill was doomed to fail from the beginning? Or could this type of a supply chain financing business that tried to make financing available for smaller firms. Could that work in some other form?
1: I think it absolutely will. I think the supply chain finance world is taking off. And there's a lot of data out there that says, actually, supply chains are not financed in the way they should be. And if you get into that world, there's a lot of space for growth. I think it's gonna be somebody, though, who is willing to be a lot more patient and you know build something over many, many years that succeeds in it. There's demand for what they produce and there are technologies that can make it work. The banks kind of want to do it. So I, I think somebody will fill that role, but it'll have to be somebody who's really patient.
0: That's all for today, Thursday, March 18th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting in this episode by Julie Steinberg. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.